On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Greg Allison about Roman Catholicism. We cover topics like just what is it? When did it really begin? Where do Protestants and Catholics agree and disagree? How does Roman Catholicism use scripture and tradition and many other topics? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode specifically or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com, or you can check us out online at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a podcast that's devoted to deep and clear thinking and a place that's designed to have friendly discussion and debate. So I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to Dr. Greg Allison. Uh, We're going to be talking about the topic of Roman Catholicism. So I think both me and Brandon are not Roman Catholic. I don't think either of us have any Roman Catholic like upbringing or connections or anything. Uh, but I know I've interacted and have, have had a lot of friends who are Roman Catholics. It's it's not like, you know, it's a small segment or a small denomination that no one knows about. I mean, it, it's widespread, very big, uh, very substantial, and has a lot of, I think, importance for how we think about Christianity and how we, do we think of them as Christians or not? Uh, you know, uh, or how that all works. So I'm really interested to talk to Dr. Allison because I know he's got a book on it that we will put in the show notes so you can go find it. We recommend that. And um, yeah, I, I'm interested in just picking your brain overall. So Dr. Allison, for those who may not be familiar with you, uh, maybe give us 30 to 60 seconds about who you are and, and why you got so interested in this topic. Uh, first, Jordan and uh, Brandon, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. I'm uh, Greg Allison. I'm professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I got interested in Roman Catholicism when my wife and I joined Crew Staff, used to be called Campus Crusade, now Crew Staff, and we were assigned to the University of Notre Dame, and we opened the crew ministry there. My wife and I also spent seven years in Italy and the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland working with uh, marginal Catholics. I've taken a class at a uh, post-Vatican II seminary on the documents of Vatican II. I've taught a class on Roman Catholicism, and Jordan, as you mentioned, I've written a couple books on this, including Roman Catholic Theology and Practice and Evangelical Assessment. Good stuff. So I guess, and I actually, I started your book, and then seminary semester started a couple semesters ago, and I never picked it back up, but I was enjoying it, um, so I'm going to need to pick that back up again. But I guess... um, the best way to start is just with a definition of what is Roman Catholicism. I know that's a big question and it's hard to answer briefly, but um, just maybe we can start there and then go into maybe some differences between what American Roman Catholicism looks like versus what it does in other parts of the world. Yes. So the uh, Christian religion and the churches that are associated with it encompass uh, three major branches, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. And so we're talking about the first of these three traditions, Roman Catholicism, and it consists of elements like the authority of the Pope, the veneration of Mary and the saints, uh, the celebration of the Mass, the sacrament of the Eucharist, and six other sacraments, and uh, other elements like that. Uh, what are the differences uh, between American and global Catholicism? 
uh, broadly speaking, Roman Catholicism has many different varieties underneath this large umbrella. There are different varieties of Roman Catholicism throughout the world. So you've got your hyper conservatives like Opus Dei and the Society of St. Pius X. They still emphasize the Latin mass. They think this pope, all the popes after Pius X have been antichrist. I mean, it's, it's hyper conservative. And then you've got the hyper progressives that might support liberation theology that would approve legislation in terms of late-term abortion, even infanticide. Uh, Some would form part of the gay mafia. So American Catholicism is, for the most part, on the progressive side. And then you've got other varieties uh, on the conservative side, like uh, Polish Catholicism. A lot of the African versions of Catholicism, they're more on the conservative end. I remember the the interview you did with um, on Christ the Center with Carl Truman, and you were talking about Benedict, and I, you said something, and I'll probably mess this up a little bit, but you you said that if we compared the last two popes, that Francis, like his emphasis, emphasis would be more on the Catholicism, and that Benedict, his emphasis would be more on the Roman. So, like, I guess we see this this difference in conservative versus progressive and different emphases and stuff, even just from, from two popes who were, who have been back to back, which to me is really fascinating. And I, I guess being a lay Roman Catholic, it would be hard to kind of get your bearings on such a, a, a radical change just from one man to another. Is that, how, how is that? Is it, is there the Roman Catholic apologists? Like how are they trying to address that situation? Yeah, I, I like what you said. So if, if we think of, the Roman element as uh, really focused on the structure, the institution, uh, the papacy, sound doctrine, and the Catholic element more focused on kind of a branding for the world and uh, ecumenical dialogue, reaching out to other religions and saying that there's salvation through them. So, um, yeah, Benedict XVI was more of the Roman side. Francis is certainly more of the Catholic universal side. And I think a lot of conservative Catholics are completely confused by this latest pope because you never know what he's going to say. If it's mm-hmm. going to come out conservative or if it's going to be very progressive, something like, yeah, even atheists may go to heaven right, through right. the good works, right? So mm-hmm. it's very confusing. Most of the Catholic Catholic apologists I know are on the conservative end, and uh, they're hoping for a change of guard. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. You, you mentioning how there's such an extreme side. You know, there's this conservative and this liberal wing. And me being a Baptist, I think it makes sense that in Baptist life, even in SBC life, that there's a broad spectrum of beliefs. I get it. Everybody's autonomous. They have their own, uh, you know, they can have their own visions of things underneath the Baptist faith and message. And even depending on what you think, maybe outside of that. But it seems in Roman Catholicism, I would think outside looking in that there would be more uniformity. So it's really interesting to me that there's such a plurality of thinking in that. I mean, is that new or has it always been that way? I think it's always been that way, you know, uh, particularly from the Reformation on. Yeah, we, we have as outsiders, we look at it and we see the Roman Catholic Church as a monolithic yeah. institution. Everybody believes the same. 
But there is as great a diversity within Roman Catholicism as there is within Protestantism. Hmm. You've got, again, you've got progressives, you've got liberals on one end, you've got conservatives, hyper conservatives on the other end. It's true for Roman Catholicism. It's it's also true for Protestantism. It's not quite as broad for us as Baptists, but we have our diversities also, don't we? Yeah. So as as Protestants, and I guess even more specifically as Baptists, we see ourselves as part of, you know, the great tradition of the Christian faith, you know, of the, of the Catholic faith, little c. Um, so we, we do want to take um, tradition seriously um, from the apostles forward. Um, but Roman Catholics, they are going to see um, tradition, obviously, a little bit different uh, than, than we do. Um, so when when would you say that, that Roman Catholicism and in, in the way we talk about it today actually um, began. Now, I know Roman Catholics, I guess, are going to say it began uh, in, you know, Matthew chapter 16, I suppose. But <laughs> That's right, uh, yeah. But, but where, when would you say that, that Roman Catholicism, like the Roman part of it, actually came to be? Yeah, so the, uh, the early church self-identified as one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This we go back to 381, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. So four identity markers, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And, and this self-identification was uh, adequate for the first 13 centuries of the church's existence. The adjective Roman wasn't added to this descriptor until the year 1208. And what occasioned this change was there was a pastor named Durand of Oscar. He had left the Catholic Church, and he had joined this splinter movement called the Valdensians, who the church condemned as heretics. So he left the Catholic Church, he became a Valdensian, but then he recanted and decided he was going to return to the Catholic Church, and the church made him swear this confession, this allegiance, quote, we believe with our heart and confess with our mouth one church only, not that of the heretics, but the holy church, Roman, Catholic, apostolic, outside of which we believe that no one is saved. That's when the term Roman became associated with one holy Catholic apostolic. To put it briefly, the church became Roman Catholic church. Hmm. Maybe we can before because there's going to be a lot of areas of disagreement. So maybe let's start with where Protestants and Catholics find agreement. Just walk us through some doctrines that maybe we would we would share with them. There's a lot of unity in this. There's there's a lot that we share in common. We should never overlook the commonalities. Yeah. Uh, so we can begin with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants are in total agreement with this. In fact, we Protestants picked up our Trinitarian theology right from the early church, the medieval period, Aquinas, all those, right? So the doctrine of the Trinity. The second one is the nature of God. We believe that God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent and eternal, all of that. We, we all agree in terms of the divine identity markers, the divine character of God. We also believe uh, in terms of the revelation of God. Generally speaking, there's first general revelation. God's revelation of himself to all peoples at all times and in all places, and then special or divine revelation, which is revelation that God gives to particular people at particular times and 
in particular places. So we agree uh, to a large degree in terms of divine revelation. We agree in terms of the person of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and he's fully man. We all affirm the hypostatic union, one person, two natures. We all deny the uh, heresies of Apollinarianism and Eutychianism and Docetism and, uh, and, and uh, the, these other heresies. We all denounce those. We all agree about the saving work of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, the Roman Catholic Church believes in penal substitution, right? That Christ paid the penalty for us, serving as our substitute. And he and he alone accomplished salvation. We believe uh, the same in terms of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's not junior God. He's not lesser God, (laughs) right? He was present in the Old Testament. He's present in the New Testament. He's present in our life. He regenerates us and he sanctifies us. We agree with that. Uh, Catholics and Protestants agree about the glory and depravity of human beings, that God created all human beings in his image, and that through Adam and Eve's sin, we have all uh, received guilt and condemnation through that. And also we inherit a sinful nature. There's a belief about original sin and thus the depravity of human beings. Catholics and Protestants alike believe, if you can handle this one, we all believe in the, that in the divine initiative and salvation. That is, even the Catholic Church doesn't believe that we have to work ourselves to earn grace, but grace starts the whole thing, and grace undergirds the whole process, and we'll come back to that, I think. right? So the divine initiative and salvation, God and God alone uh, supplies his grace to begin the process of salvation. Uh, penultimate agreement would be on the community of faith. We all agree in some way about the church. Uh, we have different understandings of one holy Catholic apostolic church, but we all agree that we're the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, because those are biblical metaphors. And lastly, there's a common eschatological hope to a large degree that at death, uh, believers go into the presence of the Lord as they become disembodied, They're looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, a last judgment, uh, eternal life, eternal condemnation, and the new heavens and the new earth. So those are large areas of agreement between Catholics and Protestants. Mm -hmm. So so hearing that, you know, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit. It seems like if we agree on that much, um, it seems like we can all affirm these certain ecumenical creeds. I would think that we would want to think of Catholics as brothers and sisters um, who have disagreements on things, uh, maybe like, but it seems like they might be outside of the bounds of orthodoxy. So maybe we can just talk about that a little bit. Maybe that just leads us to the areas of disagreement. Are the areas of disagreement substantial enough to say that it's not just that I don't want to be in the same local church as you. um, It's I think that you are a different faith altogether of some sort. So are there like tiers that we should think of when we come to this? So I would approach it this way. The Roman Catholic Church as a system is seriously flawed. Hmm. It is seriously, seriously compromised on matters like justification, uh, papal authority, the magisterium, um, tradition and scripture, uh, Mary, uh, and, and uh, the whole notion of grace infused to the sacraments. And all. So the Roman Catholic theological system for me is uh, very dangerously, seriously flawed. That does not preclude 
individual Roman Catholics yeah. from becoming believers, right? Uh, they go to Mass, they hear a reading from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospel, right? The, 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 the Gospel could be preached simply in the reading of the Bible. Mm-hmm. God could open their hearts, uh, regenerate them, justify them. They may get involved in a Bible study in a local evangelical church or with uh, friends and neighbors in their in their neighborhood. Uh, and, and so I, I do not discount at all the fact that there are genuine believers who are Roman Catholic and they still need, may be uh, situated in their Catholic church, kind of looking at it, at it as a missionary outpost for them. Yeah. So you mentioned several areas of disagreement, and obviously I think justification is probably the one that a lot of people talk about. So maybe we, we deal with that briefly. But I'm interested, you mentioned a couple other ones as well. So the nature of the sacraments and how grace is infused. I've always found that confusing. So maybe you can help me understand what exactly their view of the sacraments is, because uh, I've just never had a good grasp on how they look at it versus how Protestants have looked at it. So um, I think most of us would go back to Augustine, end of the third century, sorry, end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, and, and borrow his definition of a sacrament, a visible and tangible sign of an invisible yet real grace, a visible and tangible sign of an invisible yet real grace. So to illustrate, think of elements of nature like water, oil, bread, and wine. These are elements of nature, mm-hmm. but when consecrated by the Catholic Church, they become capable of receiving the grace of God and transmitting the grace of God to the Catholic faithful. They infuse divine grace into the Catholic faithful through the sacraments of baptism with water, confirmation with oil, the Eucharist with bread and wine. So elements of nature receiving and then communicating grace of God infused into the lives of Catholics, thereby transforming them, enabling them to engage in good works and thereby merit eternal life. Hmm. So that's the sacramental system and how it's connected to this process of salvation for Catholics. So it seems that the difference is in the process of salvation, it sounds like. Because I mean, some people would say there's a means of grace in in, in the sacraments. So I I don't know if they, I don't think they use the the terminology of infusing grace, but it seems like there's still some commonality in that. Yeah, Protestants uh, rarely, I I can't think of anyone who uses the the expression infusion of grace. We talk about imputation. Mm-hmm. Right. So here's our emphasis on justification, divine declaration, God pronouncing you're not guilty, you're forgiven of sin, and uh, you are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're not guilty, but you're righteous instead, not because of our inherent righteousness or any of our good works, but because God credits the righteousness of Christ to our account, he imputes it to us. And so justification is our standing before God, and it's true of us, 100%. Or if we've never been justified, it's not a process, it's not partial. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we contrast the uh, process of salvation in the Catholic Church, which is lifelong, infusing more grace, 
cooperating more with this grace, becoming more holy, engaging in good works, meriting eternal life with the Protestant idea of justification. God declares you not guilty, but righteous instead. So would this be where the distinction between, for Protestants, an act of God and a work of God comes in? So so for us, justification is, I guess, an act more than it is, like sanctification is more of a work. But but Rome sees justification itself as, a, as an ongoing work. Is that right? Yes. So justification for Roman Catholicism, here going back to Trent, justification is not only the forgiveness of sins, but also sanctification and the renewal of the inner person. So mm-hmm. Catholicism collapses uh, forgiveness of sins, uh, regeneration, and ongoing sanctification. That collapses it under the umbrella justification, which makes our salvation a process, which makes it a synergistic work, mm-hmm. God doing his part, giving grace. We're doing our part, taking the sacraments, engaging in good works, married in eternal life. And Protestantism just doesn't have anything like that. We don't merit anything. And so I suppose then it, it really comes down to if you believe that that Roman Catholics are guilty of the Galatian heresy, because I think that's where it, it comes down to the, the question of do we think there are our brothers and sisters? Where you fall on that question, I guess, is where you're going to fall on are they our, our brothers and sisters? So what have Protestants—I'm sorry, I, this is— kind of out of left field, but what have some Protestants had to say um, in, in the Protestant tradition about Roman Catholicism and the, that heresy in Galatians where, where Paul says, if you're guilty of this, you are you know, anathema, you're, you're cut off from the faith? I think historically Protestants have underscored the admixture of faith, sacraments, and good works in the Roman Catholic system And if it's not the exact same thing as what Paul is talking about in Galatians, there's a lot of parallelism there, right? So Mm -hmm. Galatians, it's it's Jesus, faith in Jesus plus, and Protestants say, no, it's a faith and faith alone, right? Sola fide. And it's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus the sacraments. It's not faith plus church attendance. It's faith plus nothing. And as soon as you add faith plus something, you cancel faith and salvation can't be obtained. Yeah, and I, I guess it seems like a big distinction would be people who are functionally doing faith plus something else versus actually doctrinally pinning it down saying, yeah, I actually believe it's faith plus X, Y, and Z. Because I, I can think of numerous Protestants who functionally often fall into this idea of it's my faith plus my good mm-hmm. works or church attendance or whatever else. I wouldn't discount their genuine faith. I think they just either are confused or, you know, whatever reason it may be, uh, they don't practically affirm the doctrine, even though if you actually ask them, they'd say, oh, yeah, faith plus nothing, 100% agree. So maybe that is part of of what goes into this in in thinking about a lot of Roman Catholics, because I imagine there's probably a lot of Roman Catholics who don't realize all of the intricacies to that doctrine of justification. They assume they're on the same page with everybody else. Absolutely. So for Protestants, it's a faith plus legalism, faith plus behaviorism, faith <laughs> plus moralism, right? So we've got our own stuff that we add to faith, yeah. uh, and it doesn't cancel it. Yeah, I think Roman Catholics, um, yeah, so they would never say a faith plus something, but what, what I usually do, my, my usual practice when I'm sharing the gospel with a Roman Catholic and I'm sensing 
wow, th- this person is coming close to grasping it. I, 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 I'll have in my conversation a question. Uh, have you stopped relying on everything that you think you can do to earn your salvation? Have you stopped relying, ceased relying on everything you think you can do to earn salvation? If they say, oh, well, you know, I, I, Jesus, yeah, and I'm going to Mass a whole lot more, or I'm praying the rosary a whole lot more, and oh, I'm trying to help my neighbor a whole lot more. I'm just such a better person now. Okay, I'm saying, no, we got to go back, maybe have <laughs> to square one, but we're not at an invitation to appropriate the gospel because they don't have it yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes yeah. sense. Well, let's, let's go into scripture and tradition, because I think this is one of the most significant differences um, that we're going to have with Roman Catholics. So walk us through what the, the Roman Catholic um, view of scripture and tradition is, and then let's compare it to um, what we as Protestants believe. Uh, according to the Catholic perspective, and here I'm quoting from the Catholic Catechism, according to the Catholic perspective, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. We Protestants say, amen. Tradition is the oral oral teaching that Jesus communicated to his disciples, who in turn communicated that teaching to their successors, the bishops of the church, which teaching is now fostered and nurtured and protected within the magisterium, the teaching office of the church. Two examples of Roman Catholic tradition from 1854, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So Mary, at the moment of her conception, was preserved miraculously from the taint, the guilt, the corruption of original sin. And then 1950, the bodily assumption of Mary, because she was conceived without sin, lived her life without sin, was sinless. When she came to the end of her days or when she died, Right, Her body was not put in a tomb, in a grave. It did not begin to decay, but it was immediately assumed or taken up into heaven. So she is the only embodied follower of Jesus in heaven. These two uh, pieces of tradition clearly contradict Scripture, but they're part of tradition. So importantly, the Catholic Church, again, quoting the Catechism, the Catholic Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So there's one source of divine revelation, special special revelation with with two currents, with two streams that, that compose it. Scripture, the written word of God, tradition, this oral communication from Jesus to the apostles, from the apostles, to the bishops, sometimes proclaimed by the Catholic Church. That contrasts with the formal principle of Protestantism, which is sola scriptura, scripture alone. This principle doesn't mean that the Bible is the only authority for Christians, right? We we can be guided by our creeds and our confessions. We certainly live under the authority of our government and under the elders of our church. So there are lots of different authorities It doesn't mean that's the only authority, but it does mean that Scripture is the ultimate authority for our doctrine and practice. And so the Protestant formal principle of sola scriptura 
is an explicit rejection of this scripture plus tradition formula of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, no, I, I guess I don't I don't want to go off on the weeds of the Mariology because I guess just frankly, it confuses me. I, I don't <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, you go the Immaculate Conception route, which I guess it makes sense why you'd want to do that. You'd want to preserve any p- potential for Jesus to have sin. But it seems like it, it's it's just a, like what's what's the terminology like it's it eternal regress of some sort. I mean, it's never going to end. Like, wh- where do you stop? Because uh, it seems, okay, if I preserve Mary from sin, it seems like I need to preserve her parents from sin too. Uh, and it keeps going on down the line. So I don't, I don't understand that, but that, so I don't let, know. Let's, that, let's yeah. uh, with the Catholic Church, call Mary the second Eve, hmm. right? So Eve, characterized by disobedience. The second Eve, Mary, characterized by obedience. How did she become obedient from the moment of her, her conception? She does not inherit original sin, no guilt, no corruption. Uh, She's born without sin. She lives her entire life without sin. Evidence of this, she remains an eternal virgin. She's ever virgin. So she never has sexual intercourse. She doesn't have other children other than Jesus and all like that. And so she comes to the end of her days and and, and she's bodily assumed into heaven because she's sinless. Hmm. That's just weird to me, but we'll move on. I want to talk more more about the mass again. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that there's idea of this conservative, really conservative wing with this Latin mass. Um, and then there's this post Vatican II mass, which is no longer in Latin. It's in the actual, I guess, vernacular of the people. What's the difference between these two versions? Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, so first of uh, what is the mass for those of our hearers, yeah. uh, listeners who've never gone to a mass, it's, it's something like, a Protestant worship service. Uh, There's a lot more going on, but let's just put a basic definition. The Mass is like a Protestant worship service, and it consists of two parts. Uh, The first part is called the Liturgy of the Word, and the second part is called the Liturgy of the Eucharist. The first part, the Liturgy of the Word, among there's, there's prayers and there's confession of sin, but there's also this feature, there's a reading from the Old Testament, a reading from one of the four Gospels, and a reading from a portion of the New Testament outside of the Gospel. And then there is a mini-sermon or a homily that ideally connects these three readings and, uh, and, and preaches the Word of God. The second movement, then, is this uh, liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, the Eucharist is called the source and summit of the Christian life because Catholics believe that in this sacrament— uh, the body, sorry, the bread and the wine transubstantiate or change sacramentally into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, so that what the Catholic faithful who participate in this sacrament receive, they actually receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They feed on him, they drink his blood, and therefore they have grace leading to eternal life. And the Latin Mass, uh, the Latin Mass was uh, centered on what the priest or the bishop did as he celebrated. It's very much oriented to the man up in front who had his back turned towards the participants, and he spoke in a language, Latin, that the vast majority of them could not understand. It was very mysterious. It was unknown and so forth. Since Vatican II, the mass features 
prominently participation by the audience. There's a lot of of uh, parishioners that are participating in the elements of the mass, and obviously the mass is conducted in English or Korean or or uh, Spanish or whatever the case may be. That makes sense. Um, to, to switch gears a little bit here, this is a question, I guess, that I just personally wanted to answer. But um, so the 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 doctrine of the the donum superadditum for Roman Catholics, um, maybe try to define and untangle that for me because it what what I do understand of it, it seems like this is way different than than how Protestants are going to understand pre-fall humanity and original righteousness. And I think that has ramifications for doctrines down the line um, and how Rome is going to differ there. So maybe unpack the Donum Superadditum for us and, and, and help us understand um, how it affects maybe any other doctrines uh, that it's related to. So uh, let's talk about the original created state of Adam and Eve. They're created as divine image bearers, and so they possess the natural gifts of rationality and free will. In addition to these natural gifts, God added two other supernatural gifts for Adam and Eve, two uh, supernatural gifts of original righteousness and immortality. And because of these two supernatural gifts, Adam and Eve were made in the divine likeness. So we've got divine image, rationality and free will, divine likeness, original righteousness and immortality. By means of these supernatural gifts, Adam and Eve experienced a unity or harmony within their souls because their reason was enabled to rule over their passions and their body. Their reason, assisted by this super added gift, the, the reason was able to rule over and, and keep in check their passions in their body. In the fall, Adam and Eve retained their natural gifts, rationality and free will, even those even though they were uh, disturbed by sin. But Adam and Eve lost the likeness of God. They lost this donum super additum. They lost these two gifts of original righteousness and immortality. Losing these gifts then, Adam and Eve began to experience a revolt within their soul because their passion, their body, usurped the role of reason, took over the rulership of them, and just totally messed them up, giving them this, uh, this corruption. So they know we now, inheriting this from Adam and Eve, we are in this uh, state of, of our passions, our body, um, exercising rulership over our rationality. We Protestants do not believe that the Genesis 1.26 reference, let us create man in our image according to our likeness, we do not think that the image and likeness of God refer to two different categories of gifts, one natural category, one supernatural gift. Um, James Barr, uh, 50, 60 years ago, really debunked the notion that these are different concepts. Nor do we as believe as Protestants that in their original created state, Adam and Eve had this latent struggle between the, re the reason, their passion, and the body, this latent struggle that was kept under control by these super-added gifts. We don't believe that at all. 
And so the whole idea of what the fall is, what sin is, the impact of sin, all of this then spills over into the notion of salvation, the church, mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Because, yeah, it, it does seem like it, it, you said it spills over. Like, I mean, it has to have, because it's foundational, so it has to have implications for, you know, how we understand how, if we if we have, a, I guess, a fundamental difference on what went wrong, we, we're going to have a fundamental difference on, on how to get things right. So Exactly. Um, so uh, this is, I guess, more of a practical question, but it seems like, and maybe this is not new, but a lot of people that I, I am familiar with and know seem to grow up Protestant, and somewhere along the line, they decide they think Roman Catholicism fits better with them for whatever reason. Why is that the case? Is that a failure on us Protestants for not preserving our own tradition and our own beliefs in a good way? Or is that something that's attractive about Roman Catholicism that Protestantism just doesn't have? Yeah, it's both actually. Yeah. So um, Protestants who have a very shallow experience in their Protestant, in their evangelical church, can tend to drift toward Rome. Uh, you know, if, if we're about entertainment, if we're about numbers, if we're just about programs, if we're not discipling people, uh, bringing the gospel to bear on every aspect of life. If we take sin lightly, uh, if there's not discipleship going on, right? And then, then the going gets tough. They say, man, I got nothing from my Protestant church. My evangelical church is so shallow, and so they leave. What's attractive about the Catholic church? Well, there's an authoritative pope. You know, we're in an anti-authority society. It's mm-hmm. nice to think about there's one who rules over the whole church, 1.2 billion Roman Catholics. And so there's an authority issue. There's a mystery. The, the whole idea of even like the Latin mass or what goes on in transubstantiation, right? This mystery is very high on a lot of people's radars, millennials, uh, uh, Gen uh, Z generation or Z, Z yeah. Gen, whatever it's called, Zen G, <laughs> Z Gen, and and uh, so there's this this emphasis on mystery, and and so the, the the Catholic Church is mysterious. There's an emphasis in the Catholic Church on history, right? It's it claims to be the one true Church of Christ that was founded, like uh, Brandon said in Matthew 16. So it came out very right from the words of Jesus. Jesus himself started the Roman Catholic Church. Now we don't hold that, but this notion of this long tradition is very important. And, uh, and, and there's just, there's, there's clarity there apparently for a lot of people just saying, we know what we are to believe and, and uh, what we're supposed to do. And uh, so there's great attractiveness on the part of the Catholic church for Protestants, for evangelicals who have experienced a pretty shallow experience in their church. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that as evangelicals and specifically as Southern Baptists, we like our our love and and reverence for history is just not there. Like and and I think people really want that because it it makes you feel like you're you're tied to something that's that's more real, that's that's much more more deep. Um and I think the the people are waking up to, you know, the the, the shallowness and, and it's just in a, in a secularizing society, a, a shallow church is just not going to cut it. Like you're either going to have the real thing or you're going to have nothing. And I think that's people are going either to what they see as the real thing or they're just abandoning it altogether. And then the, the muddled middle is, is kind of dying out. But um, 
I have a bad habit of of asking people to make predictions on here, but <laughs> I, I'm going to do it again. So early on, you know, you mentioned that there's, uh, you know, there's three branches, I guess you could say, of of the Christian faith: Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants. Where do you see, you know, because there's, I guess, in the last, I don't know, and I'm not an expert on this, last 20, 30 years, there's been more of a an ecumenical push um um, among some so do you do you think that that's going to continue or or uh, where where do you see the relations between these three branches going um in the future the near future i guess well uh part of the very essence of the roman catholic church is an impetus towards catholicity or universality and the catholic church claiming to be the only true church of jesus christ at the core of their mission is to bring about the unity of the church under the auspices of the Roman Catholic Church. So ever since Vatican II, the Roman Catholic Church is deeply invested in ecumenical dialogue with Eastern Orthodox, with all kinds of Protestants, from Anglicans and Episcopalians to Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and all like that. And those conversations continue. And then there's also a move towards the Roman Catholic Church engaging in dialogue with Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and Muslims and Taoists and agnostics and atheists, right? There's a huge impetus towards uh, universality, ecumenical dialogue, incorporating everyone under the big tent of the Roman Catholic Church. So my prediction is that's going to continue to heat up. Hmm. So for those who, the listeners who want to learn more about Roman Catholicism, and understand what, what what all they believe, what all they think, what all they practice. I know we've got your book, Roman Theology or Roman Catholic Theology and Practice. Um, we definitely tell everybody to check that out. Are there any other resources that they should be familiar with that might help them to understand how Roman Catholics think, or maybe just how to dialogue well w- with them? My good friend uh, Chris Castaldo has written two books: uh, Holy Ground. Uh, he's he's a former Catholic and now an evangelical. That's an excellent book. Chris Castaldo, C-A-S-T-A-L-G-O, Holy Ground. And then another book, uh, How to uh, Talk with Catholics about the Gospel. Again, Chris Castaldo. Those are excellent, excellent books. He and I co-authored a book with Sondervan called uh, The Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. So my Roman Catholic theology and practice is a walk through the Catholic catechism, and it's pretty hefty. It's deep. These other three books are much more on a popular level. I've just finished the rough draft of a book called 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. It's Mm. part of the Kriegel series, 40 Questions About. So I've uh, literally three weeks ago turned into rough draft. It should be coming out middle of next year, 40 Questions About Roman Catholicism. So uh, that will be another resource down the road. Awesome. So you guys are listening who might forget when that comes out. We will remind you when it comes out and tell you to go get a copy. Thanks. Um, Dr. Allison, is there anywhere for people who like want to follow your work and want to follow the stuff that you're putting out? Do you have a website or anything like that? I don't. I'm not. 
I'm You're not on Twitter. I'm on I'm on Facebook. <laughs> I am tech challenge. Yeah, I'm not on social media. Sorry. That's, that's awesome. Well, that that tells me my books. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't feel like I have to worry about you. You know, doing something dumb. So <laughs> that's Thank right. You for that vote of confidence. Yeah, <laughs> that's not going to get me on Twitter. <laughs> Oh, well, Dr. Allison, we've had a ton of fun talking about this topic. Uh, I want to say thank you for it. This has been really, really helpful. I think this is a great introduction and uh, some good resources for our guys, everybody to check out. Um, for those who've been listening, uh, we encourage you again, check out these resources. I think they're really helpful. Dr. Allison is doing some great work. Um, and I guess, you know, if you're interested in seminary and you can't attend physically then Southern and they've got this awesome, cool program where maybe in the future they're going to be doing Zoom in the classroom. So I think that's cool. I mean, I'm a Southern homer because that's where I did my MDiv. But, uh, you know, I'll let you guys decide whether that's a good idea or not. So check those out. Uh, and you've been listening to the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.